0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 369 Interview with Paul Brandis, as he talks about FDR's use of the radio and newspapers. Paul Brandis, the author of several books, including This Day in U.S. Military History and This Day in Presidential History, has come on the show to use his experience as a White House correspondent to discuss FDR's brilliant use of the media in his day, to inform, but also to ensure his fellow citizens that their country would endure this world war. Mr. Brandes, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: That's uh, my pleasure, but uh, please call me Paul.
0: I will try to override my Southern programming, and and I'll do the best I can, but no promises. Okay. So, uh, first of all, I want you to know, uh, for, obviously, thank you for coming on to the show, but I wanted you to know that I was enjoying some of your books very much. Uh, the first one, This Day in U.S. Military History. Uh, I'm enjoying that one, but also another one. I didn't, I didn't think about this at first, but when I saw that you had this book, Under This Roof, the White House and the presidency, twenty one presidents, twenty one rooms, twenty one inside stories. I got to relove my uh, I got to relive my love of the West Wing show all over again just by getting inside that building hmm. and exploring its history. So I was hoping before we jumped into uh, World War II, if you could give us a uh, maybe an example of one of your stories from that
1: book. Well, it's uh, as the sort of the subtitle says, it's uh, 21 rooms, 21 stories, 21 presidents. And Mm -hmm. uh, I did it that way just because, you know, we all know the White House and the presidents and the first families who have lived there. uh, But I wanted to kind of take the storytelling in a bit of a different direction and tell some of the stories that have uh, that went on in each particular room so i would pick one room or one part of the mansion mm-hmm. that uh i think uh, we're all familiar with the oval office for example or the situation room and i would uh, a lot of stories for each of those rooms that i would try and find one that was interesting and write mm-hmm. about it
0: cool yeah no i was in i was watching you on youtube uh, getting ready and yeah some of those stories especially with Je- uh, jefferson and adams uh Uh, That was really neat to go blast in the past and to see how that building came about over the years. Right,
1: right. Well, it was interesting because uh, the White House, uh, a lot of folks don't know, but the White House is one of the oldest buildings in the United States. It was finished in 18... Well, it wasn't finished, but it was ready for habitation in 1800, and George Washington, who picked the site... Uh, was the only president who actually never lived there. John Adams was the first to move in, and he was only there for a couple of months because he lost the election that year to Thomas Jefferson. So, so it was really Jefferson who began to make some of the early changes to it, and over the preceding, uh, over the succeeding two hundred and twenty-two years or so, uh, the building has continued to evolve. Every president has put his particular touch on it in one way or another. So it's a work in progress.
0: Right. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up Jefferson because many, many years ago I worked at Monticello and we had driven into us that that man liked to tinker. He liked to change things. He liked to improve things. He He would look at a, a building or a room or whatever and he would see potential for better and he just couldn't help himself. He was going around tinkering with things all the time.
1: Well, Jefferson was sort of a... Uh, jack of all trades. I mean, he was an architect and a farmer and a surveyor and an inventor and a botanist and on and on and on. He made made wine. And he actually, uh, the design for the White House was an Mm -hmm. open competition. And Jefferson submitted an anonymous entry himself. It wasn't uh, picked, but uh, it very well could have been. And then uh, the White House would have looked Uh, quite differently than it actually does.
0: Oh, okay. So he could have got his uh, personal stamp on the White House as well. That reminds me, you probably know this better than I do, obviously many, many years later, Kennedy is dining in the White House, and he's got a small party with him, and he says something like, never has so much talent been in this room or at this table except for when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Because that's how smart he was. You know, he... I, it just like you said, he was a was that a polymath, maybe, but just a very
1: uh,
0: well-read person with a uh, wide diversity of of interests.
1: The Kennedy Party, by the way, the dinner party was uh, a dinner party for all living Nobel laureates in the <laughs> United States, and obviously Look. some other uh, people on that uh, level. But uh, what a wonderful comment that he made. and certainly reflective of uh, his view of Jefferson.
0: Exactly. And I'm glad you remember that because that that makes it even more touching. So before we jump into this, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? And uh, I would really like to hear about some of your time because you were in Moscow for a couple of years. Uh, If you could share any experiences you have, that would be great.
1: Well, I spent five years in Moscow. I have a degree in Russian history and I went off, this is a long time ago, to work right. in the American embassy in Moscow and then uh, I decided that uh, it was a, it would be actually more interesting and more exciting to leave the government and I became a journalist so I became a foreign correspondent mm-hmm. based in Moscow and I spent several years after that just traveling all over uh, what then became the former Soviet Union literally every nook and cranny of that country 11 time zones uh, just visiting everywhere and just it was just an amazing time to be there and um, kind of uh, very sad about what has happened to it in the last uh, couple of months. that's a whole nother uh, discussion. but for me at least it was just uh, what an incredibly colorful, exciting, Uh, time for me to be there
0: yes and hopefully um a better period of uh, relations between our two countries is is in our future so i absolutely agree with you on that so um So let's go ahead and just jump into this. So I wanted to have you on the show because out of everything Uh that I've done, and I'm up to like early 1942, I haven't really gone into detail about FDR using the radio, the fireside chats, anything he might have had worked out with newspaper guys. You know how politics works. And I was hoping you could uh, maybe bring some of your experience of being a White House correspondent. And I'm sure this is a subject that you've looked into. But could Uh you speak to Roosevelt's? I don't think there's any other word for it, death touch when it comes to using the tools, the newspapers and the radios. And and the way he did, uh, was he groundbreaking or was he just really good at it?
1: Well, first of all, let me say that uh, even among our more recent presidents, we talked about Mm -hmm. John F. Kennedy a couple of minutes ago, Uh, Kennedy and even Ronald Reagan, both of those presidents who are well known for their uh, communication abilities, their speaking Mm -hmm. abilities, their deft touch with the media and all that. Each of them, Kennedy and Reagan, each uh, gave FDR all the credit for what (laughs) they became, which is an incredible compliment to Franklin Roosevelt and his ability as a master communicator. And think about it. Ronald Reagan and John F. Kennedy both said, "Well, if it weren't for Ronald, if it weren't for Franklin Roosevelt, mm, I might not be here uh, today." So, what was it about Franklin Roosevelt that really made him so amazing? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really just a couple of things. And first, I'll I'll preface all that by saying that the radio was not uh, all that new when Roosevelt became president. I mean, Warren mm-hmm. Harding. Uh, a dozen years earlier was the first president to actually speak on the radio, and then there was Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover. After that, so there had been three presidents prior to Roosevelt uh, who were on the radio. The problem is that none of them were very good. Uh, they didn't have a good voice. They weren't. Right. They didn't speak in the right style. They didn't just whatever the reason was. Uh, Roosevelt. Meantime, uh, before he became president, he was first elected in 1932, he had been a governor of New York before that. So he'd spent, which is very obviously a prominent job uh, in and of itself, and he'd spent a couple of years listening to these other presidents on the radio, and he just thought that he could do better. So by the time he came to the White House in 1933, when he was inaugurated, he was ready. And he understood, unlike these prior presidents that I mentioned, he understood that radio is a very intimate medium. It's really, you, like you and me, for example, it's just basically, you know, one guy talking to another. And Roosevelt knew that obviously tens of millions of Americans were listening, but he always thought of himself speaking with just one other person. It was that uh, simple, that informal. That intimate. And it was that, uh, from that standpoint, that allowed him to be so conversational, so at ease. And when Americans heard Roosevelt on the radio, he would get tons of letters at the White House, and they would say things like, uh, you just make it seem like you're a member of our family, uh, we wow. were sitting in our living room listening to you, uh, things like that. It was really powerful. And of course, the fact that uh, there were no other, really no other, uh, there wasn't television, for example, there certainly wasn't mm-hmm. social media. It was really at the time, uh, it was radio and it was uh, the newsreels before uh, the movies and newspapers. So there really was this huge diversity of platforms that presidents have to struggle with uh, today. There are only a handful of platforms, and Roosevelt made the most of it. But the main thing was that he was just simple and informal. And the other key thing, too, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll, this is where John F. Kennedy comes in, Roosevelt also had a philosophy that less is more. People always know him for his famous fireside Chats, But in the 12 years that he was president, people are always surprised to know this, Mm -hmm. uh, he only gave about 30 fireside chats in his 12 years. In other words, two or three times a year he would do these. So the very infrequency of them added more drama when he did appear, which was quite amazing. And when John F. Kennedy became president, One of the first things he asked uh, one of his aides, uh, how many of those fireside chats did Roosevelt uh, give? And when Kennedy was told that was only about uh, 30, Kennedy had kind of validated what Kennedy had been thinking. uh, And Kennedy also decided that he obviously the president can go on television whenever he wants. Mm -hmm. Kennedy obviously could have done that. Uh, Kennedy decided that he would make very infrequent appearances as well, which he did. And, of course, when Kennedy uh, did go on television the few times that he did, sort of like Roosevelt, the infrequency added to the drama when he did go. And that's sort of a lesson, I think, that uh, current presidents uh, seem to have forgotten Presidents these days are everywhere. They're on mm-hmm. television every day and they're on social media every day and this and that. And I think uh, we tend to get uh, tired of uh, our presidents after uh, a yeah. few years and sort of the sort of the, the phrase that familiarity breeds contempt. I think that applies in uh, one in, in no small part to, uh, our politicians who think they they have to have an opinion on everything. They have to react instantly to everything. They have to have right. f- flood the zone with appearances. And I think that's a mistake. And although Roosevelt, obviously, the president 90 years ago, it was a very different uh, time. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the philosophy is uh, interesting. I think sort of the less is more. Uh, is a very powerful thing. It adds more to the the drama and the mystique of what being a president is rather than just, you know, being ubiquitous and available all the time, which tends to kind of, uh, you know, dilute the, I think, the power of the office. Hey,
0: everyone. Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing it's the number 1 finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number 1 financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoo finance. I I couldn't agree more, and I'm glad you brought up the intimacy, because like you said, you and I are talking, but your voice is in my head. You know, it's like there's this immediate connection, because I feel like, yeah, this bond almost. So between something like that, between FDR's gift of gab, between his ability to speak plain and to feel like he's talking to everybody and not just making this broad speech to hundreds of thousands of people. I guess that was a connection, and people really needed that because, as we know, the 1930s were anything but calm, and they probably appreciated very much when he would come on and say, you know, this is what we're going through. We're going to do the best we can. Everything will be all right. You just have to trust me. Kind of Well, tone.
1: the, the yeah. other thing about that is mm-hmm. that Roosevelt— like Kennedy, these are obviously very well educated uh, men. They both went to Harvard and so forth. And yet when mm-hmm. they spoke, they obviously they used small words. They spoke slowly, sort of like I'm doing now. They used right. small words, spoke short, simple sentences, did not talk down to people. And it was just enormously effective because it reached, uh, it helped them reach, uh, I might say the lowest common denominator, but it helped them reach uh, far more people than uh, had they you know used their uh, Harvard vocabulary and things like that. I've seen these studies that uh, have taken uh, recordings of you know Biden now or Trump or Clinton or Obama or any of our recent presidents. And they they uh, say that, uh, well, these presidents tend to speak at a kind of a, a higher uh, education level uh, than most Americans uh, have. And I wonder if that might be a mistake uh, as well. You know, so I think, again, I think the Kennedy and uh, FDR thing was short, simple sentences, speak slowly. And calmly, it's very powerful and effective. And I'm not sure that a lot of presidents, a lot of politicians in general these days, are not really getting the right uh, advice in terms of how to speak with people. Just my opinion.
0: Right. No, I certainly do love the folksy touch. And yeah, I think that's been lost. Everybody wants everyone else to know how smart they are or how big their vocabulary is. And so they just throw out these words. But you're right. It is about effective communications. And if you're not doing that right, then your whole message is going to be off.
1: Well, that's right. If you can't communicate effectively with uh, the public then uh, what good is it
0: yeah, exactly you're wasting your time so i know you can't be with us long but i wanted the other reason i wanted to bring you on is because i know you've dove into the story of midway and as it turns out that when i recently stopped um covering the pacific theater i went from pearl harbor almost right up to the Battle of the Coral Sea and Midway. So I'm glad that you're here. I was hoping we could talk about Midway a bit. Um, And so let's just jump into this. So why does the Battle of Midway take place in the first place? What's so specific about this?
1: Well, Midway was really just, uh, I I think, uh, the pivotal battle in the Pacific in Mm -hmm. World War uh, II. Naval historians think that. Winston Churchill thought that. And some historians, in fact, have uh, called the Battle of Midway one of the most consequential naval engagements in world history, which is not hyperbole. It was just hugely and strategically uh, uh, important in World War II. And it really only happened about, uh, what, Pearl Harbor was December 41. Well, this was June 42. So Mm -hmm. it was really only about, uh, you know, a couple of months after uh, Pearl Harbor, and it turned the entire Pacific War around. Uh, After Midway, when the United States uh, sank four Japanese aircraft carriers in just a couple of hours, really, Mm -hmm. it really broke the back of the Japanese and their ability to uh, extend their offensive in the Pacific. After Pearl Harbor, there were fears that uh, not only would Hawaii be attacked again, but the West Coast of the United States would be uh, attacked. It was a very real fear. Uh, Midway changed all that. And Midway occurred for a couple of reasons, I think. The Japanese... Uh, made a huge mistake at Pearl Harbor. They, they they missed the American aircraft carriers at Pearl. They got the battleships, obviously, mm-hmm. most of them. The aircraft carriers, for various reasons, were not there. They missed them. So the Japanese knew that if the American aircraft carriers were still, uh, you know, uh, available and operational, well, then uh, they, they, they had to take out Uh, the carriers, and it was the Japanese goal, one goal of Midway was for them to do that. And Midway was also used as a uh, submarine base for the United States. It's about uh, 1,200 miles northwest of Pearl Harbor, I think, 1,100, 1,200 miles, I think. So by putting uh, a naval base, a submarine base uh, there, it would sort of extend the range of the U.S., a subfleet. So it was just, just strategically important in a lot of ways. So the Japanese wanted to take uh, Midway uh, out. And what happened was the, uh, the I, I, well, I think one of the key things about Midway is that uh, American cryptographers broke the Japanese code and determined mm-hmm. that Midway was one of their key targets. And one way they confirmed that Midway was on the Japanese uh, radar, if you will, was that they uh, planted a phony message. Today we would call it disinformation. They planted a message to the effect that uh, the water purification system on Midway was on the fritz. So they're running out of fresh water. It was, uh, it was not true, but they planted that, uh, they, uh, they broadcast that in an unencoded message just to see if the Japanese would take the bait. Well, they did, and that was how the Americans confirmed that Midway was going to be a target, and they planned accordingly. And then when the Japanese uh, steamed toward Midway, they had six carriers for the Pearl Harbor attack, but only four for Midway, and they were dispersed so far apart that really the U.S. was able to sort of uh, you know pick them off, and that's how oh. the battle was won. It was just a remarkable battle. And after that, the Japanese were never really able to, uh, they were essentially on the defensive for the rest of the war after that because their long-range offensive capability had been destroyed at Midway. So it was just a hugely influential battle.
0: Right. And of course, just like you mentioned, the great irony was Yamamoto wants to finish off Pearl Harbor. He wants to take out the uh, the American carriers there's three at the time, one was damaged but and of course, just like you said we end up taking out four of their carriers so, so the irony is it lost there but yeah, so for all of Yamamoto's bravery and the professionalism of his men, I mean they did make mistakes and, and you just mentioned a big one, we did crack their codes and we could see what they were talking about and like you said with the water treatment yep. we were able to test that theory. Right, right That's incredible. So, so, and you've, you've already kind of touched on this already, but yeah. So what I remember when I did Pearl Harbor was that, uh, Admiral Yamamoto tells the Japanese government, he goes, look, if we can hit Pearl Harbor and we can hit them hard, I can run wild for six to 12 months. Well, as you just said, a couple of minutes ago, the Americans made sure that was six and not 12 with the incredible outcome of the battle of Midway.
1: That's right. And the other thing, by the way, about that sort of a preface to Midway was another hugely important uh, event, too. And that was the famous uh, Doolittle raid, which I think was in uh, April 1942. Mm -hmm. And what happened there was that uh, uh, General Doolittle... Uh, decided that well, well, Roosevelt decided first of all that the American people needed uh, sort of a morale booster. He said, "We got to hit the enemy. We got to just we got to just figure out something we can do." And it turned out that uh, this was what they decided upon. And what Doolittle did was they got as close to the Japanese coast as they could and launched. I think. Uh, 16, but not a lot, it was not a huge raid. I think about the 16 uh, bombers, B-25 mm-hmm. Mitchell bombers, and they flew to Tokyo and other cities and they dropped their bombs. And they didn't really hit any significant targets or anything uh, right. from a, a strategic standpoint. It really wasn't much, but from a, uh, just from a psychological standpoint, it was a huge blow. To the Japanese, they they'd, they'd mm. been they'd been attacked on their homeland had never happened before. It was a huge embarrassment, uh, and that was part that kind of played into their decision to attack uh, Midway uh, as well. So uh, Midway, I think, uh, not Midway, but rather the the uh, the, the Doolittle raid was mm-hmm. just uh, that's a hugely important story as well.
0: Right. It almost sounds like Midway, in some ways, was almost an emotional response versus just a strategic or tactical. And, of course, that's what you want to do. You want to get your opponent emotional. That way they're not thinking and they make mistakes. And like you said, the Japanese lost four carriers that day. So big mistake. Yep. Well, Mr. Brandis, I want to thank you for your time and your insights today. Uh, I do want the listeners to know that besides the books we've mentioned, the White House and the presidency and this day in U.S. military history and presidential history, you also have another book that I have uh, added to my summer reading list. It's uh, Jackie, her transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. I've always been fascinated by her and what happens to her after the assassination. So I'm really looking forward to that book.
1: Well, the Jackie book is interesting because there have obviously been a ton of books about uh, the Kennedys, a ton of books about Jacqueline Kennedy, uh, but they all tend to focus on her period in the White House or maybe later in life when she was a book editor in New York and all of that. That's all Mm -hmm. well and good. But I decided to look at kind of a more uh, under-examined period of her life, and it was the five-year period between her two marriages. Her life in some way is sort of defined by these two very powerful men that she married. One was the president of the United States. Uh, The other was one of the world's richest uh, tycoons. Uh, Two very incredible men that she married, but there was this five-year period in between when she was on her own, kind of a single mom. Well, not exactly her typical single mom, but nevertheless... Uh, on her own, uh, living in New York with her two kids and all the drama and the colorful, uh, sometimes uh, frightening things that she had to go through, uh, the men she uh, dated, her search for new love, her financial right. struggles. She had, she had tremendous financial struggles, too, that people don't really uh, know about. So just a ton of interesting stories about her during that five-year period.
0: Right. She married into the Kennedy family, but she wasn't a Kennedy. So I imagine after her husband's gone, she doesn't have access to their family fortune.
1: Well, she was taken care of, but not Mm -hmm. uh, but but not all that much. Uh, She bought a home a couple of weeks after two weeks after the assassination. She moved down to the White House and a couple of weeks after that, she bought a home across the street on N Street in Georgetown. She needed to borrow money from the Kennedy family to buy that house. And Robert and Robert Kennedy helped with the financing of that and so forth. And the same thing when she fled Washington in 1964, moved to New York and bought uh, a co-op apartment in a uh, very nice building on uh, Fifth Avenue. She had to borrow money to buy that as well. So she had... Uh, I mean, she was no danger of starving, but right. but the perception that uh, she was rolling in dough was not correct. Uh, this home was important. Uh, she right. had private school for her kids because of security concerns and Jackie and Caroline and John. They got all kinds of uh, security uh, threats and the occasional death threat and just, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. They were security guards. And there are nannies and maids and cooks and all of that. So, again, not exactly your typical single mother. But there were expenses associated with all of this that she couldn't necessarily uh, handle. Uh, so during the five years that she was on her own, uh, she – again, she was no danger of starving, as I mentioned. But uh, to suggest yeah. that she was raking it in, as people commonly think – really isn't true. And what drove her into the arms of Aristotle Onassis, who at the time was just maybe the second or third richest man in the world, as was 1968, was after Robert Kennedy was murdered in June of 68, she was deathly afraid, not just for herself, but her kids. Uh, she was deathly afraid of uh, security for uh, her and her kids. Aristotle and Nassus offered her all the security in the world, plus all the money in the world. So uh, that's why she married him.
0: I, I would have as well. But And again, I, I've always had a soft spot for Jackie yeah, O, but I mean, could one woman have to, should one woman have to put up with so much in her life? I mean, you know, obviously incredible highs, but also incredible lows as well. So I'm really looking forward to that one.
1: Well, thank you. It's a good, uh, I I think it's just a really interesting story.
0: Cool. So again, Mr. Brandis, I know you're a busy man. I want to thank you for your time, but I, again, I'm enjoying the, uh, the book this day in military history very well. There's always little nuggets that you forget. It's, it's nice to be reminded of that. so, I want to thank you for that book and thank you for your time
1: today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. I'd uh, I'd love to come on again.
0: Uh, That would be great. You keep writing books and we'll keep talking. Okay. How's that sound?
1: Okay, thank you so much.